you'll please take your Bibles and turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're continuing our study in this brief passage as we look at the titles that God gives to us for Christ to be born hundreds of years before he actually comes, but he does it with the assurance that this will happen. And so we come this morning to the phrase that probably has the most um, discussion about it. Some people have the most uh, problem with this part of the phrase where uh, Jesus is called the everlasting father. And so I want to read verses six through seven this morning for you, and then we'll go uh, to the Lord in prayer. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end, and on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts, he will do this. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, as we come to your word, it is your word and it's given to us. And so, Father, we ask that you give us the Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten us with understanding so that we might comprehend. And then, Lord, as we comprehend that we would apply it to our lives, that it might change us. So we look more like the Savior, but then, Lord, send us on the path to go. And as we've already sung, that we would preach the gospel, heal the sick, set captives free, and bring freedom to those who are in prison. For, Father, you are the answer, and the only answer that works for this world. So we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Everlasting Father. So it's a, it's a phrase that becomes uh, maybe troublesome for many because they look at that and go, well, how is the Son also the Father? And so we're going to unpack that a little bit, but we're going to start by looking at the phrase everlasting. And so as we look at time, time is something that is confusion for me. If you really go and try to study time or you ask the question, what is time? And here's why. This quote was uh, given by St. Augustine. He says, I know what time is until you ask me for a definition about it. And then I can't give it to you. See, if you go and look up what is time, it starts to take you to all different places. And physicists begin to uh, extrapolate of you can't even discuss what time is because we have to discuss about things like, is it a block universe? Is there truly something like a past, present, and future? You start to talk about entropy, moving, everything moves to disorder, so at some point, for according to some people, as they study this, there will become, everything is always moving away from what they would say was the Big Bang Theory. So everything's moving away from the beginning. And so at some point, it's going to be so far apart that there is, in essence, nothing. There's others who talk about the time arrow. And so... Time only moves forward. So if you truly liked the Back to the Future kind of movies, tough luck. 
And think about that. Are you really up for the time that you, when you took a picture, do you really believe that you're seeing something that's happening in somebody else's house because your picture is there? Einstein's relativity. And I'm telling you, you can get so deep in this, you can start questioning, is there any reality at all? Are we just seeing a part of it? So, by all means, if you want to frustrate yourself, do a study on time. That's right. But there is understanding because most of us live in time. We have a profound experience of time. And we talk about time as a linear time, which means it's considered to be the fourth dimension but it's also a sense of measurement. We measure time. We, we do rely upon our watches and our clocks. And we know this because we need to know when to print crops. We need to know where GPS is to know where we are in regards to the world. We, knew, we know, I know, that you guys pay attention to the service times. Because if I go over, people start to look at their watches. So we live within time. And so there is an understanding because we're in it all the time. So the question is, is how does the finite talk about the infinite? So what God does is he begins to give us this word of everlasting, but it should be probably more correct to say eternal. Now, we talk about Jesus being the alpha and the Omega. Revelation 1.8 says this, but he also um, says it in regards to himself at the end of this heaven and earth, and as he looks forward to the new heaven and the new earth. Because for the Jewish people, their understanding was, when they talked about the eternal, it's the whole of everything. It's from the beginning to the end. So what we need to think about is that Jesus is the eternal Father. So we see from Revelation twenty two thirteen. this is the quote. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Now, why is this important? Well, we looked at verse 12. He says, I'm coming soon. I'm bringing the recompense, the reward for what we have done. So for those who have obeyed God, he brings the reward of everlasting life. For those that have lived to themselves, he brings the reward of hell. But he says, I am coming back, and I am coming back because I am the one who is the ending. And so we understand this to be perpetuity. He is the eternal father. And so he is the one who brings about giving us new birth. He's the one who shows us what it means to live not towards extinction, but he's there for us. And so he's there for us in regards to what we talked about, the block universe. He has always been there in the past. He is present here in the future and will always be the same for the future. He is always there. But there's something that happened in his incarnation in the first advent where Jesus came specifically at a moment of time and space. And so it's not that Jesus is just kind of out there. Jesus came as an infant child in time and space. God became man. And that is huge. 
Because we're not talking about the force. We're not talking about things that are just out there. We're talking about a specific God who became a human person in time and space to live a perfect life, to give to us his righteousness. And that's what gives us hope. Because if not, what is the purpose of time? What is the purpose of your life? And I think if you think about it, you would come up where a lot of people have, naturalists, and you would say that nothing means anything. It's all meaningless. Listen to what Russell says. He wrote um, a, a famous thing called a free man's worship. This is what he thinks of man. And this man was a, a philosopher, a mathematician, a metaphysical naturalist. He was brilliant by human standards. And this is what he says. Man is the product of causes which have no prevision of the end that they were trying to achieve. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of just accidental collocations of atoms. That no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave. That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday, noonday brightness of human genius are destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only in the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. If you do not have Christ... And you take time to think about what is the purpose of life. You will end up here. When he says at the end of his death, there is darkness without. And when I die there, it will be darkness within. There is no splendor, no vastness anywhere. Only triviality for a moment and then nothing. That's why we shouldn't be surprised when people give the statement of, Drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's why people live for themselves. That's why they live for the moment. Because they believe the world truly is empty, void, and vain. We understand that. I, I, I gave you this example before where there is, uh, where I went over to the Police Athletic League and I was doing a study with the children. And I told them, I said, you can take these pieces of candy right now. These are yours and you see them and you can grab them now or you can wait. And I promise you there is something better if you would just wait till the end of the lesson. Not one waited to the end. Not one. Because for a lot of them, it's better to just simply grab for what you can grab at the moment. It's why I struggle sometimes going to, to weddings because I think marriage has become, uh, for a lot of people, as we hear what are supposed to be vows, they've just become good suggestions to one another. People don't understand anymore that the, when you stand before each other and you promise, not just promise, but you vow with your life. I promise with my whole life, this is what I promise. Today, it's just suggestions. Hey, I'm going to say these words, but I don't really mean them. 
And by the way, let's go ahead and have a prenuptial agreement so that we can fairly uh, dissolve ourselves because I know that we're never going to measure up to these promises we just made to each other. That's the world we live in. But as I was doing this study, the words that, that came to me uh, was found from uh, Sam Wise Gamgee to Mr. Frodo. And it's at the end, and he says, There is some good in this life, Mr. Frodo, and it's worth fighting for. But why is there good? It's because we find hope. And we find hope in the gospel. Bloom, in his uh, study, said this, In other words, a cosmos created by God gives us hope to make it possible for a Christian to be filled with all joy and peace in believing and by the power of the Holy Spirit to abound in hope. That comes from Romans 15, 13. Listen to this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. We have the answer. We have the only answer. We know governments can't fix it. We know that children can't fix it. Education can't fix it. Engineering can't fix it. Education cannot fix it. The only one who can give us hope in life is Jesus Christ alone. He's the only one. And so he gives to us this eternally. Never-ending, perpetually, ongoing. And he does this because he becomes, for what? Us, a father. Now, let's look at what's not meant by the statement of father. So we're going to look at the Trinity. So there is unity within the Trinity. Because there is one God, coexistent, co-eternal. So Jesus and the Holy Spirit are God. Do we understand that? No. Why? Because we're finite. He's infinite. He's all-powerful. You're weak. He's everlasting. You're only going to be eternal from this time forward. So we can't grasp and understand the Trinity But we do have to understand the concepts that there is one God in unity, but there are distinctions. So there is the Father, who is the ultimate source of all things. He's the ultimate source of the universe. He's the ultimate source of divine revelation. He's the ultimate source of salvation. But then Jesus becomes the agent of those. He's the one that is there during the universe. He is there giving divine revelation. He is the one who provides salvation. And then the Holy Spirit is the means by which it applies to us. How do we find ourselves in the midst of creation in the universe? How do we find ourselves understanding divine revelation, the truth that comes from that? How do we have salvation applied to us? It's by the Holy Spirit. And it should create within us this understanding from Romans 11, 33 and 34. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Where do you go to fix things? You go to the creator. 
Where do you go for salvation? You go to the one who can provide life. And so we need to make sure that we don't misconstrue that Jesus is Father in the sense that he's replacing the Father and the Trinity. What he is becoming, he has become the Father or the federal head of us. Now, what does that mean? Well, we live in a republic. We are not a democracy. Get this right in your education. We are not a democracy. We are a republic of representation. You don't get to go pick what we vote on. You don't have a vote. And if you believe what's out there, your vote doesn't matter anyways. But we are a republic in the sense that we have representatives. We have representatives for us in regards to government. We have representatives for a country. You have representatives in your family. You have people who speak on your behalf. So for us, we had a first Adam who was in the garden, who was created without sin, but yet had the ability to sin. And what does Adam do? He chooses unwisely and he sins. But that meant that every one of us who comes afterwards is born into sin and have a sin nature. That's why I say things. Even when we look at beautiful baby Rowan, who turned one today, she's a viper in a diaper. She's born into sin. We don't have to teach our kids to say mine. It's ingrained within them to be selfish. All of us. So it's our nature, and because that nature, there is what we, and we, I want to make this distinction, it is imputed to us. It's not infused to us. It doesn't give us just the ability to sin. We are sinners, period. And because we're sinners, we have to also understand that that imputation is therefore applicable from Jesus to us. Again, it's not just an infusion from Jesus to us. It's not just the ability to be righteous because that puts us back into a position where we have to do good works. And let me ask you this very specific question. If we have to do good works, how many make it count? How many do you have to do? How many times do I have to go over and minister in the Booker T. Washington community? How many times do I have to love my wife? How many times do I have to edify my children? How many times do I have to go to your events and make you feel like your pastor loves you? How many times? When do I reach that level? I'm telling you, as your pastor, I feel guilty always, all the time. You don't have to make me feel guilty. There's always like, oh, I need to call this person again. Oh, I need to text this person again. I need to give this email. And then I feel bad with my own kids. I'm like, well, am I spending enough time with my own kids? Oh, no, Dad, it's okay. You go spend the time with the church. I'll just hate you. What? That's not nice. I mean, we're, we're guilty all the time, aren't we? But that's the whole point of Grace. And mercy, and the answer that comes from God, he says he is truly the loving father and the perfect judge. He washes our way our sin, Revelation 1.5. And from Jesus Christ is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins 
by his blood. Jesus Christ, born of the virgin, and that's a hill to die on, I tell you that. Because it allowed him to be 100% God and 100% man. But he lived a perfect life that we cannot live. But it doesn't stop there. When he went to the cross and he shed his blood, he gives to us a righteousness we could never earn. So when God looks upon the Christian, he sees Christ. Not me. Thank goodness. But it's a free gift and it's perfect. He washes away every sin. Even my sins of self-righteousness. He takes it all. And he gives to us then, again, the righteousness of Christ. That thing that fixes us between God. For our sake he made him to be sin, Jesus, who knew no sin, so that in him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And so we're given life so that we might truly be alive. Listen to what 1 Peter 3.18 says. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Do you get that? Jesus brings us to God, being put to death in the flesh. But listen, being made alive in the Spirit. The only life worth living is found in Christ alone. So he's your father to us as the federal head, but there's also the understanding that we have a family likeness. And we've heard the statement, this person is the spitting image of their father. They're the spitting image of their mother. Didn't it kind of scare you when you figured that out? When you looked at pictures and you go, oh my gosh. That cannot be me. Or, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I have that trait. It's true in the physical things. But there's also a sense where our character is developed because there's indelible imprints. Perceptions, experiences that we go through our family that we have only experienced that puts an imprint on us of how we deal with the world. But here's the incredible thing, is God doesn't say you get to be saved because you come from a specific lineage. You're not saved because you have this great, you, you deserve to be saved. He says you're saved because of him, but you then are adopted by him. Now again, most of us have come by natural means, and we have earthly Fathers and mothers, whether they're good or bad, whether they've stayed or left, whether they have died or won't die or can't die. But there is something very unique and a very big gift when people are adopted. And I've told you this before, and it's, it's actual laws even here, even in the United States. You can write off your natural children as much as you want. You can disconnect from them. You can write them out of your will. 
If you adopt someone, you by law can never, ever have them been taken out of your will. You never lose custody of your adopted children. Never. Now apply that to Christ who looks at us and says, you are my adopted children. Now, adopted children, depending on when they're adopted, struggle with things. And so we might look at that and kind of go, I don't trust that. But here's the thing. God is talking to us and he says that he is continually transforming our hearts into the likeness of Christ. Think about how cool that is. His perfect love affects us. And that's why he tells us that the greatest of the commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to what? To live it out by loving the neighbors. I know your traits of how your parents raised you. Because you act that way. Naturally. It's only when we begin to understand that sometimes we need to say no to our natural ways and be transformed by the perfect love of Christ. So those that struggle are saying, I hate kids. And I can tell you, true story. We as staff at Village 7 out in Colorado Springs because we had seven staff members and we had um, multiple Christmas Eve services And it's even at a church of 1,600 people. It's hard to staff a nursery. So what they tell the the staff people who get paid? You've got to work a nursery shift. What? Worked a nursery shift? I got peed on. (laughs) Peed on by a little kid that I didn't even know. Did I throw the kid off my lap? Did I throw him at his parents? When they came back in, or did I hug them? It's okay. See, the more that we grasp and understand the love of Christ, the more we give love away. That's why even if you hate kids, you should be in the nursery. It's why if you hate teenagers, you should be praying, at least praying for the teenagers by name. If you hate old people, at least work for them. Do things for him, pray for him. Not because you have to, not because you're trying to earn Christ's love, but you're allowing Christ's love to change who you are. It's part of the family traits. And then the last thing he does is he becomes the king treats us as children. And I want you to get that. He doesn't treat us as subjects. Remember what they did to the Jews in World War II? I mean, besides, besides just taking them to the uh, camps to put them to death, they tattooed numbers on them. Now, why do they do that? Because they weren't worth a name. You're just a number. And it would be very easy 
for the king of the universe to look at you and just see you as a number. But he doesn't. He calls you by name. And not only does he call you by name, he knows the numbers of hair on your head. He knows that you are worth more than a sparrow. He knows you intimately and he loves you. And how does he love you? Well, the first thing he does is he cares for us. 1 Peter 5, 7 says this. We can cast all our anxieties on Jesus. Why? Because he cares for us. And we see that throughout scripture. Remember what he tells John, even with his mother as he's on the cross? Mother, here's your son. Son, here's your mother. Take care of my mom. Now, why did, why did he do that? Why didn't he say that about his other brothers? He had other brothers. He had human brothers. He had human sisters. Where were they? They weren't there. The disciple was a believer and he was present. And he stood up and did what Jesus asked. Jesus also, in Matthew 9, this is where the paralytic is brought to Jesus. And Jesus calls this paralytic, my son. We know from Mark chapter 5 that the woman reached out and touched Jesus' garment. And how does he respond to her? He calls her daughter. We've read from Psalm 103 that he has a steadfast love. He knows us. He knows our frame. He knows we're made of dust. But he cares for us. He's tender with us. He's a father from everlasting to everlasting. His love never fails. So he cares for you. But he also not only cares for us, but he protects us. Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. He provides for your needs. He provides for your physical needs. He provides for your rest. He gives you direction. He allows you to escape from temptation. He gives you help when you're hurting. He gives you grace and mercy when you need salvation. He gives you peace. He gives you truth. He protects and provides and cares. And the last thing we looked at is his providing for us. Psalm 18.2, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. Where do you run? Because he provides protection from physical harm, from Satan, from sin, death, and those who are wicked around you who seek to destroy you. And what are we told to be? To be strong and courageous. Now again, when we look at the world, when we look at our situations, don't we coward some? I can't do this. I'm overwhelmed. And God looks at us through Christ and he says, on your own, that's true. But the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. 
Now, this might seem like a tongue-in-cheek response. The worst thing that can happen to you, the worst thing that can happen to you is you can die. And let me tell you a truth. You're going to die anyways. Not one person in here can stop it. All the people that were, you can freeze your head. You can freeze your body. Doesn't help. Doesn't work. But it doesn't matter how rich you are or how poor you are. It doesn't matter whether you think you have the greatest mind or if you had trouble passing second grade. Everything, everything is brought under the understanding that you're going to die. So where do we find our encouragement? Where do we find our hope? Where do we find life? And here's where the application of today's passage should be. I'm going to ask you some very specific questions. How are you using your time? Are you waiting for the best that God has for you? Or are you settling for a secondary and momentary pleasure of this world? What are you waiting for? God says, redeem the time that you have because you have hope. But let me ask you another question. Are you feeling like an orphan? Do you feel like no one cares? No one understands? I'm telling you very specifically, your heavenly father, who is perfect. And I know some of you have bad examples. Some of you question the statement, but you have a perfect heavenly father who will never leave you or forsake you. Never. So trust him and run to him this Advent season. Why? Because we know that he's a loving God. And he is transforming us into the likeness of our family every day. Find hope and joy this Advent season. Go find it. But I'm telling you, it would ultimately and always and only lead to Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know you do not belittle our issues and our struggles and the trials that we go through. They're not meaningless to you. And we know this because you didn't just wash over them. You don't just number us. But you loved us so much that you gave. You gave your one and only son that he would be humbled to become a man here on earth at a specific time in a specific place to live a perfect life to die a specific death at a specific time on a specific hill whose blood paid for our covenant penalty and he gives to us his righteousness And Father, he adopts us as his own. And so, Father, may we never belittle that. May we never seek out joy and hope and life in the things of this world. May we always be pointed to the purpose, the sole purpose 
that we would glorify God and enjoy him forever. Lord, may this be our prayer and may we find it and tell it. Tell it this Christmas season so that all that have lost hope amidst COVID have have lost hope in the government, have lost hope in neighbors, have lost hope in family or jobs, that they would find it in Christ and him alone. For this we pray in the powerful name of your Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said, Amen.